0: Hello, and welcome to the 5:38 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. It's been three days since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. More states now have abortion bans in place, protesters have taken to the streets, and reactions have rolled in from across the political spectrum. We're going to talk about all that, along with the preliminary polling data on how Americans are reacting to the decision. The data suggests they don't support it by a significant margin, as was the case before the opinion was released. And new polling from CBS and YouGov suggests Americans now support making abortion legal on the federal level by a 16-point margin. And of course, the Supreme Court is still in the process of wrapping up its term. Monday morning, it released another notable opinion, siding with a public school football coach who prayed on the field after games. Last week, the court also struck down New York's gun restriction requiring people show a special need for carrying a handgun in public in order to receive a permit. We'll discuss briefly how that ruling could shape gun laws and also how a 30-year federal impasse on gun control measures came to an end this weekend when President Biden signed the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Perhaps it is a sign of the times that that news is coming this far down in the intro this morning. And of course, there are also more elections to talk about this week. Colorado, New York, Oklahoma, and Utah are holding primaries. Mississippi and South Carolina have runoffs. And there's a special congressional election in Nebraska's 1st District. So we'll let you know what to watch for. Here with me to kick us off on the Supreme Court's recent rulings is senior writer and legal reporter Amelia Thompson DeVoe. Hello, Amelia. Good morning. Happy Monday.
1: It hasn't been long, (laughs) Happy to be talking again. The Supreme Court is the gift that keeps on giving.
0: Indeed. Wrapped up last week talking with you. Woke up Monday morning talking to you again. Also, here with us is politics editor Sarah Frostenson. Hello, Sarah. Hey, Welcome y'all. to the podcast. Happy Monday.
2: Happy Monday. So,
0: we last talked right after the Supreme Court ruling on Friday. Amelia, how have abortion laws changed, if at all, since two and a half days ago?
1: Well, a bunch more states have banned abortion. So we talked on Friday about how 13 states had what are called trigger bans in place, which had sort of prepared for Roe versus Wade being overturned. And some of those were immediate. Some of those required a little bit of state action to kick in. So we saw some of those over the weekend. We also saw some more laws go into effect that were not trigger laws. So for example, Alabama's full abortion ban had been enjoined by a federal court because obviously until Friday it was unconstitutional, then it became not unconstitutional. So that went into effect as well. And we're going to continue to see all of this kind of morphing and changing over the next month, as more of the trigger bans go into effect, more laws that had been stayed are allowed to go into effect by judges, and we also have a couple of state legislatures that may take action. So this is very much a fluid thing. Like I could give numbers, but it almost feels like we're just in such a state of flux right now that um, that it it could be different by the time people listen. So. Yeah, but more states have banned abortion is the short answer to your question.
2: (laughs) The speed at which these laws have gone into effect, as Amelia is getting at, has just been staggering. Alabama, as she mentioned, you know, had a full ban abortion on the books. And when it went into effect on Friday after the decision, all three of the state's clinics stopped doing the procedure. And clinics, you know, were turning away patients who were supposed to receive abortions on Friday. And that wasn't just happening in Alabama. The New Yorker had a profile that was looking at the largest abortion clinic in Texas, in Houston, And women being turned away then too. So the effect of the ruling on Friday almost immediately tripled down to a lot of these clinics and states where abortion is now outlawed.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that was
2: even really the case before the
1: ruling came down. Um, I mean, there was there was a piece in the New York Times um, where they were looking at what was going on with clinics in Oklahoma and South Dakota, where it was basically impossible to get an abortion. The clinic in Missouri, where abortion is now illegal, was just fully booked. It wasn't possible to make an appointment. So as Sarah said, we really this month have moved into this reality where it's gone from being very difficult to get an abortion in many of these states in the South and Midwest to being impossible and clinics having to call patients and say, we can't provide this care that we scheduled you for. And in some cases, working to get those patients out of state in a trend that I'm sure we are going to be talking about a lot more.
0: Yeah. So looking at a report from Bloomberg, they suggested that more than a quarter of the country's 790 abortion clinics are estimated to close and that people living in those places will have to travel an average of 276 miles each way. So 552 miles to access the procedure. You know, I think a sticking point is going to quickly become that there are a bunch of states where abortion is legal and there's a bunch of states where abortion is illegal and can... Republicans and conservatives who do not want abortion to be legal in the United States prevent people from traveling. How much is that in the conversation right now? Does it seem like that is a path forward that Republicans want to take? Everyone's got to take a next step here or is planning their next step here, whether you're on the left or the right or however you may view abortion. What is the maybe overarching approach for Republicans at this point?
2: That's a really good question, Galen. So, people like Ross Douthit at the New York Times, who is more of a conservative opinion writer, had a piece out over the weekend that was kind of calling for a, you know, a Christian empathetic response to Roe now being overturned. In the sense that support will be needed for mothers. It has to be a message of, you know, love and understanding because there does seem to be a real fear among the pro-life movement having just won this victory in terms of Roe being overturned, how to move forward next. Because what we've seen and what Amelia's covered for the site is a shift in restrictions getting more and more restrictive, wanting to ban abortion pills, wanting to ban the ability for people to cross state lines. Missouri was one of the states, you know, kind of pushing forward on that legislation. I haven't seen in the, over the weekend, like anything really coalesce in terms of the next movement. I think there's a question of, you know, do Republicans try to push for a national? law that looks to ban abortion. There's arguments that, you know, that could really hurt them in the midterms. That's been a kind of question here in terms of, as you were talking about in the outset, and polls been displeased with the court's position, particularly women and, you know, suburban women who, you know, could have maybe voted Republican here in the midterms. Does that now change? And so I think you're seeing the scrambling among Republicans and kind of two forces at play in terms of, okay, we've got energy, we've got momentum, we need to, you know, ban abortion nationwide and much more like hesitancy about how to actually tackle that and what the messaging should be. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, as
1: Sarah said, the anti-abortion movement has just won this huge victory. And there are many people who who want to keep pushing forward because, you know, this is something that they believe very strongly in. And it's not enough to just ban abortion in some states. And, you know, they don't want women to be traveling out of state. Another thing that I've seen is some Republican legislators speaking out against companies that have said they will provide funds for employees who want to travel to other states for abortion. We saw a lot of those announcements. On Friday and over the weekend. So, I'm wondering if that is going to set up another confrontation similar to what we saw in Florida between big corporations taking a stand on social issues and Republicans. But I think more broadly, the travel issue is just one piece of a broader conundrum that is facing opponents of abortion rights, which is that they've won this big victory, but now they have to enforce these laws. And closing clinics is pretty straightforward, but the big difference between now and before Roe is that abortion pills are available and they can be mailed very easily. There is sort of an infrastructure around abortion pills that's grown up over the past few years, and it's going to be really tricky to enforce bans on abortion pills without potentially taking the step of prosecuting people and prosecuting women who receive and use the pills, which is something that the anti-abortion movement has not wanted to do. They have very much framed women as victims in this movement, that abortion is bad for women, that anti-abortion laws are protective for women. And they recognize, I think also correctly, that people really don't want women who are getting abortions to be punished. But I think it will be really hard to reconcile that with the fact that It's just going to be really hard to ban abortion, given the availability of abortion pills. And so I would put that in sort of a a similar category to the travel bans, where you have this option for people to go out of state. Interestingly, Justice Kavanaugh did actually address that in his concurring opinion. And he said that he personally would assume that the ability to travel out of state is covered under the right to interstate travel. So I think he was trying to send a little signal there that he's probably the median justice on the court. This is where he comes down on it. But I think this is just a much bigger conundrum that folks on the right are
0: gonna have to wrestle with. So just as folks on the right are wrestling with how they are going to approach abortion going forward, so are folks on the left we saw protests over the weekend we've seen lots of statements from lawmakers lots of fundraising appeals sort of tying this to the midterms and beyond is there some sort of unified approach there i know like republicans and people are still scrambling somewhat but they also we've known for almost 2 months now that this was a likely a possibility
2: yeah we've known for 2 months but the reality of the senate math hasn't changed and so you know when biden addressed the nation on friday he essentially passed the buck back to voters and said You know, it's not over if you want to protect the right to abortion, but it's up to you voters, elect Democrats. You had some senators like Elizabeth Warren then speak out and say like, look, the legitimacy of the court is in tatters. We should add more justices to the court. There was a Gallup poll, coincidentally, that was released on Friday prior to the decision that showed an all-time low in trust in the court. And so I do think you're having kind of competing factions within the Democratic Party respond to, you know, how should we handle this moving forward? And it hasn't gotten as much attention, but the states where abortion is legal, perhaps not protected, but could be protected, there is movement there. There is movement in states where it is already legal to shore up those protections. But a lot of the emphasis understandably now is on the states where they're looking to ban abortion.
1: I mean, I think for Democrats, at least in some of those big midterm states, like the messaging is easier for them now, right? You know, they say we want to keep abortion legal. And that's like kind of the, that is the issue in something like the Pennsylvania governor's race. If a Republican becomes governor in Pennsylvania There will probably at least be a six-week abortion ban, if not a full abortion ban next year. If a Democrat is elected, there won't be. It's funny because I I feel like the anti-abortion movement for a long time has been in the position of having somewhat more straightforward messaging. And the left has really struggled You know, and I think that happens a lot of the time when you're on the defensive, you know, you attack the status quo and that's easier to do. You know, I wonder if this is going to be a little bit simpler for Democrats. The question of court packing is interesting, though, especially in that I didn't see a lot of talk of that over the weekend. So I wonder if Democrats are recognizing that it's maybe a more powerful midterms message to just say, as Sarah was saying vote for Democrats to keep
0: abortion legal. Yeah, I saw any court packing talk over the weekend I saw was decisively from the sort of most left progressive part of the party, you know, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, Elizabeth Warren and the likes. It seemed like there was a lot more straightforward pitch from sort of Pelosi or Biden or other large figures in the party. For just uh, raise money, vote for Democrats.
2: That's true. But I think it goes back to the messaging point. Amelia's right that now that Democrats are on the offensive, in theory, they could be able to, you know, coalesce behind one solid message. But I think one thing that's proven difficult for Democrats is Americans do support some type of restrictions on abortion. And so what will the message be moving forward? You know, will they take a stance on how far into a pregnancy they would advocate for abortion to be legal? Is it just overturning Roe? I think you will have competing factions within the Democratic Party pushing different messaging on that. And conservatives, of course, will, you know, try to glom on to the most progressive cries within the Democratic Party. And that could hurt Democrats potentially. It is interesting that,
1: you know, we're still continuing to see this pretty stark divide on the left with people who are pretty far to the left being in support of court packing and sort of more of the center left and more of the establishment. Really not, because the Supreme Court term is not over yet. We're going to talk about some of the other cases that have come out. But this is just a historically conservative court that is notching a lot of conservative victories. I mean, abortion, the Dobbs ruling will be the most high-profile case that comes out of this term, and it has a big and really immediate impact on Americans' lives. But no, I think if I were a Democrat, I would be looking at the Supreme Court and I would be really worried. So it is interesting that there isn't more of an effort on the left the way there has been on the right to say, you know, elect Democrats so that we can change the judiciary. I mean, maybe we'll see more of that. But that's something that I've been watching for and and will continue to watch for, whether there's an explicit prioritization of changing the judiciary
0: on the left. I want to talk more specifically about the public opinion polls that we've gotten since this decision came out. But Amelia, on that point, how do voters react to Sort of judiciary-based appeal. You know, packing the Supreme Court probably sounds to voters like something that's pretty extreme. It might also sound somewhat esoteric. What kind of a voter is going to respond to that appeal versus keep abortion legal appeal?
1: I mean, the problem with court packing, as you were saying, is that it's a really seismic change to the system. And I think it sounds very disruptive to people. I mean, it would be really disruptive. It's not something that has happened in modern history. People are much more supportive of other Supreme Court reforms like term limits. The problem is that term limits would you know, there would be a very serious. I mean, I don't want to say like they definitely wouldn't be constitutional, but like I think the Supreme Court would would not be a fan of term limits for itself. And court packing is like has the benefit of definitely being constitutional. So I think there's that tension where the forms of court reform that are more popular are just much more difficult logistically to make happen. I don't think it's true that people are opposed to court reform, but the most viable form of court reform is less popular. I do wonder though, I mean, like that hasn't been the message that Republicans have had. They have linked the judiciary to an issue like abortion. And they have said, we need judges who will act in XYZ way on abortion. And so that is almost what I'm watching for more than these calls for court packing, a sort of broader appeal to Democrats to vote or, you know, to Americans to vote for Democrats because the judiciary has gone too far outside the mainstream and needs to be rebalanced. Because that was the thing about the focus on judges on the right. It was always linked to issues. It was never out there in a vacuum. And now Democrats really do have an opportunity with this court to point to the court and say, look at these things that are happening. You don't agree with them. The judiciary is out of control. You need to vote for us to put things back into sync, basically.
2: Yeah. And on that note, NPR Marist poll that was released on Monday found that 78% of Democrats said that the court's decision in Dobbs makes them more likely to vote this fall. And that was 24 points higher than Republicans. So to Amelia's point, if Democrats are able to link together this message of here's what would happen to abortion rights if the Supreme Court, you know, had more Democratic appointed justices. Maybe that's a, you know, convincing message for Democrats. I wonder, though, the salience of abortion as an issue, what that will mean for Democrats versus Republicans. It's long been an issue on our right. There's evidence that it's shifted more in terms of a priority for Democrats, but is it the same kind of motivating fact?
1: I mean, the thing that I thought was interesting, though, is that I, I wonder if this is the ruling that really wakes Americans up, to how conservative the court is because there was some research that came out earlier this year showing that Democrats in particular typically underrate how conservative the Supreme Court is, and that was sort of starting to change. And now when you look at polls, you know, you'll know you see more Americans expressing concern that rulings on same-sex marriage might be in danger, rulings protecting birth control might be in danger. And so I think even if abortion on its own is not a huge motivator. There is more of this idea in the air that this is a Supreme Court that could start taking away more rights. And that could be powerful, too.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm curious about those polls that show how likely Democrats or Republicans are to vote based on any one particular issue. We're still obviously a long way off from November. And, We will see how likely voter models affect the polls going forward. But, you know, we often hear this message of under Trump's sort of presidency, President Trump has to do these X, Y and Z things. Otherwise, voters aren't going to turn out. They're going to have nothing to support. They won't turn out at the midterms. And we've heard more recently from progressives and Democrats in general, Biden needs to do these three things. Otherwise, voters aren't going to have anything to vote for. They're going to be dissatisfied and they won't turn out it sounds like from the poll you just cited that voters don't necessarily reward you when they get what they want. They more support you when they're angry with the other side. So perhaps as much as folks would like to say, you need to do my top three conservative or progressive things, otherwise I won't vote for you, that might not be rooted in electoral evidence. I don't know, what What do you guys think? Do you see this as actually now changing the dynamic in that sort of Democrats have something to vote against and would be likelier to turn them out?
2: Ah, uh, the 2018 midterms all over again. Was it Trump or was it health care and Democrats protecting health care? I, I think that's an interesting uh, point.
0: Wild guess? <laughs> <laughs> no,
2: I mean, it's an interesting point. You know, I think Democrats definitely went to the ballot box in 2018 motivated by a hatred of Trump, right? There's no question that that was not a energizing factor of their vote that year, just given turnout and the blue wave and the overall electoral environment. Almost from day one of Trump's presidency, there was an active backlash, which fed that rise then for the midterms. And so Galen, I think that is a good point then moving into the midterms this year is, you know, does the court's rightward direction. And as Amelia was pointing out, you know, it's not just necessarily abortion. It could be contraception. It could be same-sex marriage. Is that enough that Democrats are motivated to vote in the midterms in a presidency that so far has had a lot of dissatisfaction, which Amelia has also reported on for the site? And Biden's approval rating is still under 40% at the moment. And he's been kind of sloughing off Democratic support, which won't necessarily mean they'll back a Republican, but they might just not vote in um, November. And I think what makes Roe challenging is it's going to impact different states differently. And does that kind of then, you know, stem the tide in terms of this overall change in the national environment? I genuinely don't know. And I think it's too early to say, but I wouldn't be surprised in some ways by either outcome, which I realize is a bit of a non-answer. It is hard to see at this stage in terms of, you know, is this really a, a win for Democrats or does it end up kind of being a... Eh, it couldn't overcome inflation, which is at a historic high.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, part of the issue for Democrats is that the Supreme Court's term ends in June. And the election is in November. So the thing about the ruling in Dobbs is that we're going to continue to see the fallout of this ruling for, you know, weeks and months to come. I mean, we were talking about how the landscape is shifting in states. Things aren't settled. They'll continue to be unsettled. There will be the question of how do you enforce these new abortion laws? So the issue is going to continue to be in the headlines. But I do wonder if Democrats will have trouble focusing people on it. If there are other concerns like, Inflation still being an issue, people being worried about a recession. I think there's just there's a lot of competing priorities for people right now.
0: So understanding all of that, we are getting early polling on how folks are reacting to this news. So you cited some of it. I cited some of it at the top. Can we paint a preliminary picture of how folks are reacting and whether opinion has changed at all since before the ruling?
1: I will have at least a little more of a sense of whether people's minds are specifically being changed next week. We're going to follow up with the Princeton study that I wrote up a few weeks ago that's tracking the same group of people on abortion. So I think that's going to be an interesting sort of barometer. There are limits to that study in other ways, but you know, it's, it's valuable to be able to go back to the same people over and over again and, and see what they think. Overall, the polling we're seeing suggests to me that People are kind of where they were. So I'm looking at the CBS News YouGov poll that shows that 52% of Americans say overturning Roe versus Wade is a step backward for America. 31% say it's a step forward for America. 17% say neither. When they're asked whether this is this is among women, whether the impact of Roe versus Wade, um, what kind of impact it'll have on women's lives. You have 56% saying that it will make things worse. 16% saying it will make things better. Better, 28% saying not much of a difference. That's basically what I would have expected given the polling going into this decision on questions like should Roe versus Wade be overturned. I'm curious whether this surprised you guys at all. But I think a lot of it is just that like things are only starting to change in people's lives. And so I have not expected that we would necessarily see a lot of opinion change, at least on these questions of individual beliefs until the fallout from the ruling starts to really become clear and like a a sort of tangible lived way.
0: Yeah. Amelia, you mentioned on Friday's podcast that Before the ruling, the public opinion polling had generally showed that around 60% of Americans support keeping Roe in place. And in that same CBS poll that you mentioned, they asked, do you approve or disapprove of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade? It was 59% disapprove, 41% approve. So pretty close to where we were. I would say the one thing that surprised me a bit was they asked voters what they thought the likelihood would be of the Supreme Court limiting same-sex marriage and access to birth control. 57% of Americans said it was likely that the court would limit same-sex marriage, and 55% said that it was likely that the Supreme Court would limit access to birth control. And those are both a a 10-point margin there in terms of likely, not likely which means either people are thinking increasingly that the Supreme Court is conservative or that specifically Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion sort of cut through. And I'll say, I saw it in the media a lot over the weekend. I am sure that that is maybe even in some ways annoying Republicans because they probably didn't want to take this conversation there, given that that's not all that popular. I guess it goes to show how influential just like one justice's concurring opinion can be? Because even as we discussed on Friday, it seems like that's not going to be the direction the court goes in in the short term, at the very least. But that seems to still be a big piece of the conversation.
2: I mean, I don't know. I, you know, it was in Alito's opinion, he said Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. And the same logic he exercised in that opinion can be applied to Oberfell. I mean, I think the question becomes does the court take up a case that challenges same-sex marriage and that's not currently on the docket, but I think it also goes back to kind of like where the political will lies. So like one thing we've seen in Gallup polling is that not only have Americans become more accepting of same-sex marriage, Republicans have become more accepting and more so than a majority abortion. of
0: Republicans. Support right. It. Yeah. And
2: abortion never had that public opinion shift. So you could make the argument that there's just not the same political will among Republicans to kind of push that issue. That I understand more than it actually, you know, from a legal perspective not necessarily being on the table. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah,
2: I mean I think that that
1: dynamic of the sort of push and pull between the courts and the elected officials is really important because it's not like the Supreme Court Just kind of decides in a vacuum, like, yes, we will decide on same-sex marriage. They need a case. And part of the reason that we got to abortion so fast was that once the composition of the Supreme Court started changing, states were passing much more extreme laws. They were sensing an opening with the Supreme Court, and they were asking the court, To overturn Roe. I mean, Mississippi literally changed its ask when it seemed more likely that the court would be more likely to overturn Roe and said, no, actually, we want you to go all the way. So I think part of what we'll have to see on that front is what is happening in state legislatures. And I think the question of political will is also somewhat relevant to the Supreme Court, too, um, because they do have a solid six-vote conservative majority. I would guess that Chief Justice John Roberts, even though he dissented from Obergefell, the same-sex marriage opinion, is not excited about the idea of overturning one of his own very recent rulings. Um, And so then it becomes a question of what the median justice, again, we don't have the data yet. My guess is that it will be Brett Kavanaugh, wants to do and what their priorities are. And As we saw from this term, abortion is a really important priority, and it's one that's been animating the conservative movement. But they have a lot of priorities. I mean, gun rights were a priority, sort of all affirmative action. Affirmative action is next term. Like there's a big Voting Rights Act case. You know, we've seen a lot of stuff with religious liberty. So I think it is totally possible that this could come back to the court. I think it is a real mistake Mm -hmm. to discount what Thomas wrote in his dissent, because that is clearly in the air. And because Justice Alito has also been really outspoken about his dislike of the ruling in the same-sex marriage case. And it seems like those two really have a lot of power on the court in a way that they haven't before. So you know, I think it becomes more a question of priorities, a question of what's coming to the court, and a question of how fast they want to move.
0: So perhaps that 57, 55 percent of Americans is not overestimating the court.
1: Yeah, I will say, I think the birth control stuff is going to be an issue whether the court wants it to or not, just because it's not a clear line between abortion and birth control. I mean, there are sort of real questions, depending on how pregnancy is defined, about whether Plan B sort of falls into a gray area whether IUDs fall into a gray area some anti-abortion folks say that those aren't birth control that they're abortion i think that just because this isn't an issue that's super clear cut and because there is some momentum from anti-abortion advocates to draw clearer lines that infringe into or move into the what other people might consider to be birth control sort of expand the definition of abortion I think there's just going to be more fighting over that. So if I had to guess, I would say that's the one that's going to bubble up first. But again, I really well, this this court has done a lot of things that I did not expect them to do quite this quickly. So um, I think it is a real mistake to underestimate how fast they are willing to go.
0: All right. Well, Amelia, you mentioned some of the other conservative priorities that Republicans have lined up for the court. So let's talk about some of those, because we have recently gotten rulings on them today's podcast is brought to you by shopify ready to make the smartest choice for your business say hello to shopify the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze As I mentioned at the top Monday morning, shortly before we sat down to record this podcast, the Supreme Court issued a ruling in the case in which a football coach in Washington State at a public school would sort of hold prayer on the field after games. He was fired and the case went to the Supreme Court in a big question surrounding sort of religious liberty and school prayer in general, the place of religion and public institutions, etc. So Amelia, break down for us what the decision from the court means exactly.
1: Well, so the court ruled 6-3 in favor of the football coach, and they did it in a way that is pretty consequential for church-state separation. In his majority opinion, Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote that the court... The way he phrased it was was so interesting. He said that the court had already effectively abandoned the decades-old test that courts and judges are supposed to use when determining whether a government law or a government action is sort of moving too far into the realm of religion. He said, you know, basically... This is already something we're not using. So, like, we're just going to move on from it and we're going to use this historical analysis test, which is a move that we've seen in several other cases, this sort of leaning on history and the idea of original intent as the way of evaluating constitutional rights. What this means practically is that a big blow has been struck to church state separation. This case was weird because there was a lot of debate
0: about what the football coach was
1: actually doing.
0: Right, like was he doing a private prayer session with himself, or was he leading prayer?
1: The issue, to just give folks a little bit of backstory, is that he was going out to the 50-yard line after games and, you know, sort of praying silently, and then students started to come, and he didn't send them away. And it eventually got to a point where, you know, there are these pictures, and I think Justice Sotomayor actually included one of them in her dissent, where you see like a, a football helmet being held above this big circle of football players surrounding the coach. And really interestingly, Gorsuch characterized his prayer as being silent and private. So he was clearly siding with one interpretation of what this prayer was. You know, it's another ruling where I'm curious to hear what you think, Sarah, but like the court did not need to go this far in deciding this case. And they did.
0: Like, they could have ruled in favor of the coach without sort of saying something more broadly about religion and how
1: they life. handle all religious liberties. Right. And, and maybe, you know, I clearly they felt like they couldn't do that. But I think that's a sign of what we should expect from the court when they get cases like this. Like, this is not the John Roberts approach where he really, you know, he said this in his concurring opinion in the Dobbs case, where he said, you know, I really don't think we should have taken the step to overrule Roe when we could have done something less dramatic and less disruptive. And that's clearly not where his conservative colleagues are at. And I think we see that with this case, too. But but I'm curious what you thought of it, Sarah.
2: Yeah, no, I think I think that's a good assessment. I mean, what Alito wrote in Dobbs again was, you know, that the incremental approach that has been Robert's kind of trademark on the court just isn't going to cut it anymore because he was saying, you know, it, had they taken a more narrow stance in the Mississippi case, they would have just been back there another year, right? Because they're putting off the bigger question of Roe. And I think within this religious liberty case, again, instead of taking the more, you know, narrow view of like, was the coach allowed to pray publicly in the field? Was it a private prayer? They then, you know, had to write the opinion around kind of a longstanding doctrine in which they've assessed religious liberty cases and said, actually, no, that doesn't really count anymore. And so I think we are seeing a court that's not afraid to turn out precedent that they view as wrong. And I think that was something that, you know, Alito underscored in his opinion as well.
0: This all sounds a little bit abstract. What does this mean in a practical sense? What can people do now that they couldn't before?
1: Well, it's sort of like moving the bar for what is allowed in a school context, I think it's all a little tricky because I think a lot of stuff happens in schools already that is not, you know, sort of like strictly constitutionally kosher um, in terms of prayer and, you know, these lines about what's, you know, students praying and, and like what's what's the line between private prayer and a prayer that someone is giving in their capacity as a government official. Those are hard to draw, but basically I think this is going to empower school officials to express religion more in capacities that previously might have been seen as going too far as something that could cost them their jobs, because that was what was at stake for this football coach. His contract wasn't renewed. And what I think is really interesting is to watch this case alongside another line of cases. One of them was decided last week that has to do with school funding, state funding of religious schools. I think we could be moving in a direction where it becomes more and more forms of organized prayer Are allowed in public schools. So we see more religion coming into the public school space. And then in this other line of cases, I think we could be moving in a direction where states are funding religious schools more and more and maybe even compelled to fund religious schools. And so that would be sort of more public money coming into the religious school context and just more blurring of the lines on both sides generally.
0: So you've said that Both Dobbs and this case are examples of where the court could have ruled more narrowly, but chose not to. It seems like, though, in last week's New York guns case, that it did take the route of ruling more narrowly in a case where it could have ruled quite broadly if it wanted to, right? It only struck down New York's law, and New York's law applies to many large populous states, but ultimately a handful of states and leaves, what from what I understand, most gun restrictions intact. What specific changes, like how did that case specifically change our understanding of the Second Amendment going forward?
2: So that's that's an interesting way to frame it, Galen, because one thing I was thinking about coming out of the- Did I
0: frame it incorrectly?
2: Well, it's not that it's incorrect. Um, It is a narrower ruling in the sense of they didn't throw out every type of gun restriction, right? I thought what was interesting, though, within that case was kind of the disconnect between states having the ability to decide what the laws should be. And the court deciding it for them, whereas in Roe, the whole underlying principle, right, is that the states should decide. And in this case, actually, the court decided New York, you, your voters put together this law, but ah, eh, it doesn't actually count. And I thought that was an interesting disconnect because I do think within, you know, how the court reads and interprets law in a conservative mindset, there's often this idea that they're strictly interpreting the Constitution as it's written, and I think we forget that oftentimes. It's still read in a way that appeals to whatever the underlying political argument often is. It's a very legal realist (laughs) take you've got going there, Sarah.
0: (laughs) I think that is how many people have come to view the Supreme Court. And in many ways, like, I don't think you could argue with that too much because clearly there's a connection between Judicial ideology and the political outcomes, like I
1: mean, I'll just you know, say anyone who
0: wasn't born yesterday pe- can see that. People would
1: argue with that. I mean, I like just just to be fair, like I think what Sarah's sure. saying is like it, it's it's just a, it's a big point of dispute. But I think you know people would say you know there's a difference between the Second Amendment, which provides this specific right, the Constitution says nothing about abortion, so these are different issues.
0: Yeah, exactly, Amelia. I was going to say that while it is hard to argue with the fact that judicial ideology seems to conveniently align with political preferences in many cases, you know, they'll also make the argument that the Constitution says nothing about abortion, while the Second Amendment literally says that you have the right to bear arms. Of course, it also says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So, you know, in many ways, uh, these fights over what that means and what many other things mean become political. But, you know, of course, people have their ideologies as well.
2: I don't dispute that. I think the disconnect, though, of a conservative legal movement that prioritizes states' rights It's very interesting that in some instances then when a state has decided, actually we want XYZ restrictions, voters support it. So nationally, New York's law, which was that you needed to have a justified reason in order to conceal and carry, is not very popular. But in New York itself, um, a Siena Research Institute poll found that 80% roughly wanted the court to uphold the law, and they didn't. So I think it, it goes back to they're not actually letting the states voice what they wanted as the law of the land. The constitutional thing, though, at stake in this case was this idea That only the history of the Second Amendment should be used to kind of justify gun laws, whereas previously courts were instructed to look at social science data suggesting that a law could reduce gun violence. That is no longer what is required. And, you know, it will only now be through historical context, which does fit within the conservative legal movement and how they think about the Constitution. It's just an interesting, you know, to what extent do states have rights to enact laws? And I think.
1: The big asterisk to the way that you introduced the case, Galen, that I would add is like, yes, this could have been a very big ruling. I would argue it was already a pretty big ruling. Going into this case, The idea was that the Second Amendment covers the right to have a handgun in your home for self-defense. But this question of public spaces was left undefined for the past 15 years, which the gun rights movement really did not like because most gun regulations affect the public space. They do not affect the home. So in this ruling, Clarence Thomas says very clearly the Second Amendment covers the right to carry a handgun in a public space. And the question of what happens with gun regulations, I think is still open because even though the court only, you know, it's just this one class of gun regulations, Kavanaugh said very clearly that, you know, states are still allowed to have some kind of licensing structure for handguns and I think it was Alito said, you know, like, we're not dealing with, like, who is allowed to have a gun. We're not dealing with the kinds of guns that can be regulated. Or the
0: place where they can be. Where they
1: can be regulated, right? There's this whole question of sensitive places and what counts as a sensitive place, you know. But this case is a huge opening to take every gun regulation that has passed in the past 10 years, every gun regulation that's already been litigated back into the courts, where, as Sarah said, the courts will have a new way of evaluating whether the gun regulations are constitutional that is probably a higher bar, especially for modern gun regulations, where, you know, it may be hard to find a historical analog from the 18th or 19th century for something like a red flag law. And the judiciary is also a lot more conservative than it was, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when we first saw this big wave of Cases in the lower courts after the first big Second Amendment ruling. So I think the court could have taken a broader action on its own here. It is setting the stage for a lot of action in the lower courts and a lot of reconsideration of gun restrictions. And it will be interesting. I mean, one thing that I'll be interested in is to see whether the court wants to take another gun case again soon, because I think there will be ample opportunity to consider some of these questions about how much you can limit who gets a gun, types of guns that are covered under the Second Amendment for the purposes of regulation. You know, there's lots of stuff for them to dig into. But I'm curious also how much they're just going to let this play out in the lower courts, where, again, there are just many, many more conservative justices or judges than there were um, before President Trump took office.
0: Yeah. So I guess, you know, maybe sort of context and expectations are important here in the sense that sort of what the court could have done was much more broad than what it ultimately did, right? These questions are sort of saved for another day and we will see them play out. And as you've said, it's created an opening. But for example, I think there was some concern that even laws like the one that Biden signed into law this past weekend could be challenged under a different opinion in this case, right? Right. Under the opinion, sort of like Kavanaugh's concurrence here, the Safer Communities, Bipartisan Safe Communities Act, you know, it's in the clear. I don't know, maybe somebody will try to challenge it, but it seems pretty solidly like these restrictions where being a certain age or having a background check, a mental health check, things like that, certain spaces being off limits are all still in effect.
1: I mean, they're in effect, but that's that's different than them being not up for future challenges. And I think that's the tension. Like, you know, the Supreme Court could have done a lot more that would affect us right now, today, in terms of gun regulations. Where it goes from now, I think could be quite broad, and we're just going to have to see how that plays out. But yes, I mean, I think with this court, there is, I always hesitate to make the mistake of saying that because they did not do the most dramatic thing they possibly could, that they have chosen, like, a moderate path which is not what you said galen mm-hmm. but you yeah, know we've yeah. seen i think not not so much this year and
0: the, data, the data the data does not we support that data and the data would not the show data does that, they're not a moderate support that. yes
1: they're an extremely conservative court and what they are doing could pave the way for a lot of the types of gun restrictions that you mentioned galen to be called into question in the courts so it's almost like how much are they willing to open Pandora's box themselves and how much are they willing to kind of crack it and say, okay, lower courts, you know, like have at it and you can open it a little bit more. Pandora's box probably just explodes at a certain point. I don't really know. I think this is a bad metaphor, but you know what I mean? Uh,
0: is that your 538 approved prediction that Pandora's box is going to <laughs> <laughs> I
1: mean, the nature. I always imagine like the the lid flying off Pandora's box or something like, you know, it's like all this chaos is contained in there. And like, what can a lid do? But anyway, that's my analysis of Pandora's box. That's maybe the way to think about this.
0: Sarah, it's taken us, I don't know how long into this podcast at this point, 40 minutes to get to the fact that a 30 year impasse on gun laws came to an end over the weekend when Biden signed into law, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. How did this happen?
2: I mean, ever since the shooting in Evalde, there had been a concerted effort among senators in Congress, Chris Murphy, a Democrat, John Cornyn, a Republican in Texas, trying to shepherd and find compromise on what type of legislation they could agree to push forward on. And so they put together a bill that enhances Background check for prospective gun buyers, ages 18 to 21, provides incentives for states to enact so-called red flag laws. Those are laws that allow states to be a bit more aggressive in denying people an access to a gun, depending on mental health records. And they tightened a federal ban on domestic abusers buying firearms. It was the first gun legislation in nearly three decades. And as you're saying, right, it's like 45 minutes in. And we're only now talking about it. Essentially, was approved the day that um, the decision came down from New York in the SCOTUS case on this. And I think part of the reason why it hasn't gotten more attention is it's also very narrow, even though it's historic in the sense that, you know, it's been three decades since Congress has done something. I don't think it went far enough for what Democrats wanted. But, you know, it did receive some backlash. Cornyn, when he was at home in Texas, I believe in a just like state legislature kind of conference, um, was booed actively by members there for having gone too far in this. It might not be everything that Democrats had hoped in terms of gun reform but it's definitely still moved the needle in a way that it has potential losses for Republicans who feel more strongly about this issue. It also, you know, in terms of legislation, they could have pushed through. There had been an analysis published by the Upshot a few weeks ago that showed that red flag laws would have helped prevent some of the more recent mass shootings. So it is a law that could have, you know, real important consequences moving forward.
0: All right. Well, let's move on and briefly preview Tuesday's elections. And our colleague, Nathaniel Rakich, is going to join us for that. And we're going to say goodbye to Amelia. Amelia, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Bye. Always great to be here.
2: People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories. Follow the True Crime NYC podcast
0: wherever you listen. We are covering lots of elections Tuesday evening. There are primaries in Colorado, New York, Illinois, Oklahoma, and Utah, runoffs in Mississippi and South Carolina, a special election in Nebraska. New York's drama-filled House elections have been pushed back to August because of the back-and-forth over-redistricting, but there are still dozens of interesting races taking place on both sides of the aisle Tuesday night, and here with us to talk about them is elections analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Galen. Thanks. So Nathaniel, as you have probably realized, because we blew past the time when I said we would be recording with you, we talked a lot about the Supreme Court this morning, which means that we are tasking you with explaining everything we need to know about Tuesday's primaries in 10 minutes or less. Do you think you can do it? Yeah, no problem. It's just like the second
3: busiest primary day of the year.
0: (laughs) Was that shade? A little bit. All right, well, you know, I I you know I can handle a little bit of shade, but let's dive right in and not waste any more time. And we're gonna begin with the Illinois governor's race. So there are three candidates leading the Republican primary to run against incumbent governor JB Pritzker, state senator Darren Bailey, Aurora Mayor Richard Irvin, and venture capitalist Jesse Sullivan, who all sit on distinct parts of the ideological spectrum. So in 60 seconds or less, Nathaniel What do they represent and what is ultimately at stake in this Republican primary?
3: I think what's at stake here is whether Republicans have a prayer in the Illinois gubernatorial election in November. Richard Irvin is the kind of more moderate candidate. Um, He has actually been attacked by Democrats because they don't want him to be the nominee and and Darren Bailey by contrast is the trumpier he, he's been literally endorsed by Trump candidate. Um, I think if Bailey were to win um, because Illinois is so blue and Bailey is kind of this you know national Republican pro-trump figure he would have real trouble winning but Irvin is an interesting candidate and maybe could have made the race competitive but it looks like Bailey is going to win this primary so it may be a moot point.
0: Okay. So, Sarah, Illinois is a blue state. Of course, we're in an environment that could be potentially favoring, likely favoring Republicans in the fall. You would think that the electorate, the Republican electorate in Illinois would say, hey, we want a Republican in the governor's mansion. Let's maybe vote for the most, quote unquote, electable candidate. What's going on here?
2: That's a great question. I mean, Bailey was arguing that, as Nathaniel was saying, that Irvin is kind of this closet liberal, and the Democrats have, of course, kind of seized on to that to boost um, Bailey then as um, a more conservative candidate. There's not a really great explanation. Up until a few weeks ago, Irvin had seemed like the favorite. He was leading in the polls, but now recent polls here in early and late June have put Bailey at 32%. Irvin at the mid to high teens. His campaign ads have expired in like Southern Illinois, which means he's just not funding as much. Also, um one of the main people who was fueling his campaign. Griffin, who is a hedge fund um, donor in the state, he is kind of pulled out and is moving his fund from Chicago to Miami. So he kind of just fizzled out as a candidate. It's not terribly clear to me why that has happened. But to your point, right now it looks like Illinois is going to elect a Trumpier Republican in the primary, and in theory that won't play well in the general.
0: All right, keeping up the pace here, let's move from Illinois to New York. We don't have quite as much to cover there because. They've pushed off the House races to August. But the incumbent governor, Kathy Hochul, who, of course, stepped in as governor after Cuomo resigned last year, she's running for reelection for her first full term, and she's got competition from New York City's public advocate, Jumani Williams, on her left flank and on her right flank, Representative Tom Swosey. What's at stake here? I think we can say that this race isn't that competitive, but will we learn anything from the margins?
3: Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not sure that much is at stake, because I think Democrats are going to win this race in the fall, no matter what, you know, I suppose, theoretically, you know, if if jumani Williams, the progressive candidate were to win, you know, that could be a, you know, a significant moment, given that New York has been Um, historically governed by more moderate governors. But Willington's campaign has really not gotten off the ground. His fundraising has been really poor. Um, He hasn't held a lot of events, perhaps because his wife is sick with cancer. So it really looks like Hochul is going to waltz to the nomination.
2: That said, though, Nathaniel, I thought you'd made an interesting point about the lieutenant governor primary in your preview. And it could be kind of like a split ticket, essentially.
3: Yeah. So in New York, the governor and lieutenant governor candidates run in separate primaries, but then in the same ticket in the general election. And like each governor candidate has like a hand picked choice for lieutenant governor. So like Williams has a progressive candidate, Archila, and Hochul has her choice, Antonio Delgado. But Delgado actually was a late replacement for Hochul's old lieutenant governor who resigned in disgrace due to corruption. Um, Well, and was
0: arrested arrested by the FBI.
3: Right. Yes. So Delgado. Delgado has had a a bit of a, you know, he's been thrown into things just a couple of months ago, so he's playing catch up a little bit. And Williams' uh, lieutenant governor candidate, by contrast, Archila, is looking pretty strong. She looks like she has an appeal that extends beyond just Williams supporters. So it's not out of the question that Archila could defeat Delgado, and then you'd have a progressive lieutenant governor, but a more moderate governor in Kathy Hochul, and that could lead to a lot of tension in Albany over the next four years.
0: All right, traveling across the country to Colorado, there are two things I want to talk about. There's a competitive Senate election coming up in the general this fall. So there are a couple Republicans vying to try to replace incumbent Democrat Michael Bennett. The other thing I want to talk about is the Republican Secretary of State and Governor's primary races there, where they're also trying to unseat Democrats. And the folks on the Republican side who are trying to unseat Democrats are pretty big, big lie supporters, which seems to have become a sort of trend in Colorado and maybe out West in general. But uh, Nathaniel, what is at stake there?
3: This is another case where I think Electability is is a big concern for Republicans, and whether these races are competitive is going to be decided by who wins the primary. So Colorado, as folks probably know, you know, it used to be a swing state, has really moved toward Democrats in the age of Trump. It's now kind of right on the cusp of competitiveness in a red wave election like 2022 could turn out to be. You could see it being competitive, but I think you'd have to give Democrats the edge by default. If Republicans nominate Ron Hanks for Senate and Tina Peters for Secretary of State, um, those are, as you mentioned, Galen, the, the two big, big lie supporters, they are probably too conservative, too extreme in order to win in Colorado. And then I think Democrats can... Not worry about the state in the fall, but the more moderate candidates uh, in those races probably could win. So, for example, in the Senate race, Joe O'Day is is actually a pro-choice Republican, which of course is is very um, you know unheard of these days. And so, you could see him as well as Pam Anderson in the Secretary of States race, who is she's the election administrator in Jefferson County, which is like a very kind of your stereotypical genteel suburban county uh, in Colorado. You could see them having appeal with a lot of the voters in Colorado who used to vote Republican kind of before Trump became the, the face of the Republican Party, but have moved away from the party in recent years.
2: Yeah. And it's another instance in the Senate race in particular where Democrats are trying to back the Trumpier candidate um, because they think there'll be a weaker general election uh, match. And it's just, you know, I hope Democrats know what they're doing, right? <laughs> In the sense of... um, For their own sake. For their own sake. It's an interesting strategy. Um, I understand the logic of it, but it definitely has more risks than I think they perhaps realize.
3: Yeah, Tina Peters, as longtime listeners to the podcast might know from Kaylee Rogers' reporting, is the Mesa County clerk who uh, used to oversee elections there, but who uh, has been removed from her job overseeing elections for 2022, at least, because she allegedly compromised the security of voting
0: machines in the 2020 election. And has several felony charges against her. Although, even if you're not a longtime listener, you probably still heard about that, because I only think we talked about it two months ago. Okay, moving on. We have two more states to cover, and then we're going to leave the rest to the live blog tomorrow. Oklahoma. There are actually two U.S. Senate elections taking place there this year. I'm going to take a wild guess and assume they aren't competitive. But of course, there is still a competitive Republican primary. So what is at stake?
2: So one of those Senate races, Galen, is not actually that competitive. Uh, Republican Senator James Lankford looks like he's going to win renomination just fine. The other one, though, is a special election, and that has already attracted 13 candidates, one of which is Representative Mark Wayne Mullen. And so that means the second congressional district is also on the ballot on Tuesday, and there are 14 candidates running for that House district. And this is just a race where, you know, it's pretty challenging to kind of suss out who will end up prevailing, namely because, you know, it's a very red state, but there's just not a ton of polling, And a lot of money is being spent. It looks like, Mark, that Mullen in the Senate race should prevail. There's a close race for second, maybe, with T.W. Shannon, who's a House speaker in Oklahoma and is the first black person to hold that office. A little bit behinding in the polls there, though, and the crowded field beneath um, Shannon makes it a little bit challenging to understand, you know to what extent he'll be able to shore up the vote there.
3: Yeah, I got to say, these races in Oklahoma are so crowded, they're probably both going to go to runoffs as well. So given how many other races there are to focus on on the June 20th ballot, I'm kind of mentally putting Oklahoma in a drawer and saying,
0: I'll pay closer attention to these uh, in August. <laughs> All right, well, let's shut that drawer for now and talk about Utah, where incumbent Representative Blake Moore is facing more conservative challengers in the Republican primary for the first district. Does it look like he could lose re-nomination? I think more is going to be fine. I'm
3: more interested in the Senate race there. I, Mike Lee, who folks might know, is kind of this archetypal conservative Tea Party Republican. He's been on this podcast. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. He's very likely going to win renomination, but he's in a unique position because he is facing not a Democrat, but independent former Republican Evan McMullen in the general election. So it will be interesting to see if he only gets like 50% support in the the primary against uh, kind of his his scattered Republican opposition. Maybe there is. A genuinely a large segment of the Republican base in Utah that's unhappy with him and might consider voting for McMullen, especially since his two primary challengers are actually from the less Trumpy side, um, which is kind of unusual when you think about primary challengers so far this year. So so that final number for Lee, I think, could be telling.
0: And of course, Abbott McMullen famously ran for president in 2016 after Trump won the nomination and got a fair amount of support in Utah.
2: It's a Trump skeptic state, or has been.
0: So we'll see what Republicans do. Have Democrats coalesced around supporting Evan McMullen as the independent, or are they trying to put up a, you know, a proper Democrat as well?
3: Yeah, they actually, in a unusual and controversial move, they um, decided not to nominate their own candidate and to um, to kind of clear the field for McMullen, which a lot of Democrats who feel that like McMullen isn't a real Democrat and he, he's not, he's not a, actually a Democrat by any at all definition, were upset by that.
0: All right. In favor of time, we are going to pick up on Nebraska and South Carolina on the live blog tomorrow. So make sure to check us out on 538.com. But let's wrap up today with Mississippi, where uh, it looks like some House incumbents are being challenged as a broader trend that we've talked about here on the podcast.
3: Yeah, so in Mississippi, Republicans are holding two runoffs in the third and fourth congressional districts where um, incumbents were were forced into a runoff. One of those is expected. Uh, Steve Palazzo, who is the subject of a campaign finance probe, um, he's probably going to lose. But the other one wasn't. That's uh, Michael Guest in the third district. And... He he's not like particularly anti-Trump or anything like that, but he did vote to authorize a bipartisan January 6th commission, and that apparently uh, was enough to get challenger Michael Cassidy the momentum to hold guest under 50%. So that one's going to be competitive too. But yeah, Galen, you know you mentioned kind of incumbents being in trouble in general on Tuesday. That's definitely a trend. We have two incumbent versus incumbent primaries in Illinois between uh, both one on the Republican side, one on the Democratic side. So. At At least two incumbents are going to lose in primaries tomorrow. That is guaranteed. I think Palazzo probably will as well. So that's three in one night, which is pretty crazy. And then you have Guest in Mississippi. You also have Danny Davis in Illinois who could lose. Doug Lamborn in Colorado who could lose. So honestly, it wouldn't be shocking to see five or six incumbents lose renomination on Tuesday, which in a normal election year, five or six incumbents losing a primary in the entire year would be a shockingly high number, but we could get that many just in one night, uh, which is pretty remarkable.
2: Now, some of those, though, are redistricting, at least the two in Illinois.
3: The two in Illinois, you know, they got thrown together in redistricting. Yeah. But in Mississippi, because of scandal, it's because of, you know, guests uh, kind of had not the party line in Illinois, the Danny Davis race—that's a urban central Chicago district where a progressive challenger Kena Collins is challenging this longtime representative Danny Davis. So it and that's that wasn't changed too much by redistricting. So if she's successful, that would be kind of a classic AOC Ayanna Presley style upset. So you'd actually get a few no, that are not redistricting related as well.
2: Yeah, no, I just wanted to stress that I feel like there's three themes, right? Like there's the incumbent versus incumbent because of redistricting. That's harder to kind of necessarily necessarily. read a lot into. But then, as you're saying, on the Democratic side, the progressive versus incumbent challenge. But then on the Republican side, which has been really interesting this year, not unique to this Tuesday, has been true in other primaries as well. But is the contest um, candidate kind of running against the incumbent, generally speaking, because they haven't been Trumpy enough and not necessarily prevailing, but to your point, like cutting into the margin enough that it still speaks something about where that party is headed?
0: All right. Well, that is it for today. As I mentioned, we will meet back up on the live blog and we will be podcasting later this week as well. For now, thank you, Sarah and Nathaniel. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Anthony Luciani is on audio editing. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director and Emily Vanezky is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538com You can also of course tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.